Welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very potent uh, conversation and dialogue and interview with Lester Brown, who is the founder of the World Watch Institute and the Earth Policy Institute. Lester is a world-renowned environmental scientist and author of numerous books, Uh, He has been called by the Washington Post one of the world's most influential thinkers. The Telegraph of Calcutta refers to him as, quote, the guru of the environmental movement. In 1986, the Library of Congress requested his personal papers, noting that his writings, quote, have already strongly affected thinking about problems of world population and resources. Lester Brown started his career as a farmer, growing tomatoes in southern New Jersey with his younger brother during high school and college. Shortly after earning a degree in agricultural science from Rutgers in 1955, he spent six months living in rural India, where he became intimately familiar with the food and population issue there. In 1959, Lester joined the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Foreign Agricultural Service, as an international analyst. On June 30, 2015, at the age of 81, he stepped down from the Earth Policy Institute and closed the institute. In July 2014, Lester was a guest on my show, A Better World. Uh, Actually, it was on the Progressive Film Hour at that time on Progressive Radio Network, focusing on the film he was part of based on a book he had written called Plan B, and you can uh, access that interview with Lester and I on my website, www.abetterworld.tv. Today, we're going to be focusing on Lester Brown's latest book, which is called Countdown. The world is running out of water, and we have to pay close attention. That was my subtitle. In any event, Lester Brown, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Very good, very good. So uh, since I've spoken with you last and since you've been on the show last, uh, which is going back a couple of years now, you have been diligently researching something that I know is very near and dear to your heart and mine and many people listening, and that is the subject of water, which – while everyone is focused so much on global warming and looking at a renewable energy-based economy and all matters of such like that, which is so vitally important, needless to say, not enough people are really looking at the subject of water and how it is disappearing. Of course, that's the subject of your book. So if you would, Take a few minutes and walk us through the true seriousness of the situation. Where do we stand right now with the fresh water reserves of the planet? And if you would, just go through it as you see fit for our audience. Well, one of the things that is happening, one of the things that's happening is that um, we're seeing some massive movements of people because of water scarcity. Uh, if you've been following the news for the last several months, uh, I think it was December 16th of last year, the Chinese uh, announced that they were going to move, 200, I think it was 240 million people, from central yeah. China to eastern China. And the reason for that was that the aquifers in central China were being depleted and they were running out of water. Now, that's been one of the most uh, dramatic examples of uh, emerging water scarcity. It is by no means the only one. 
Um, in Iran, 70% of the, the southern part of the country has been abandoned now because there's no water there anymore and people are moving north. Um, and the, the number of people in in Iran far exceeds the number of people, the, the amount of water that they have to support them. And this is not... This is not unusual. I mean, in this country, um, we're running into some pretty serious water problems because the the Ogallala Aquifer, which is the uh, central aquifer in the uh, the U.S. states between the Mississippi River and the and the Rocky Mountains, is um, um, is largely. Uh, depleted now, so we're beginning to look around for for water in, in this country. Um, and the the challenge with with the water issue is that there's no substitute for water. If you don't have the water you're in you're in trouble. And uh, mm-hmm. we know it takes a thousand tons of water to produce one ton of grain. So if we're running short on water, we're going to be in trouble on the food front before very long. Well, one of the distinctions you make in the book, Lester, is between uh, the cost, the water cost of growing rice and the water cost of growing wheat. Could you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. Um, the two um, the two dominant food crops in the world are rice and wheat. The difference between the two is that rice takes about twice as much water to produce a ton of grain as um, it takes to produce a ton of wheat. So there's going to be a shift away from rice and toward wheat simply because of water scarcity. So if if it's a thousand tons of water, uh, did you say for wheat growth? Uh, then that mm-hmm. means it would be two thousand for rice. Yeah, it, the, the rule of thumb is it takes two thousand tons of water to produce a ton of. Uh, I'm sorry. Or a thousand two, tons exactly, of water. Thousand tons of water, exactly. Sorry, I I inverted that. Yes, exactly. So you're looking at uh, so it's literally double to grow rice. And that's, that's right. just uh, from a scarcity, from a water conservation point of view, it becomes virtually untenable. I guess you right. could say that for all of these, maybe even thousands of years, that rice has been the staple for China, India, Southeast Asia, when there were plenty of water supplies, the aquifers ran deep. Now we're just, and we had a much, much a lower uh, population, that was acceptable. But you're right. implying now, stating that that is no longer viable in the current situation. Yeah, there's no question but that. I mean, if you want to look at water tables, underground water tables, and uh, and how fast they're being overpumped, the fastest drawdown is in northwestern India and their water tables are falling by 15 feet um, uh, per year. I mean, it's a it's, it's a scary situation, and because most of the water that we use comes from underground, um, most people don't realize how how dangerous it is. But we're moving into an era of water scarcity worldwide that very few people understand. Some people know there's a little water problem here or there, you know, wherever they live, um, scarcity in their city. But this is a global problem. And uh, the thing that makes it global is that the the way in which we we manage um, uh, grain is we have... Um, um, with with water, we have uh, an almost unending 
demand. The, the area in the world where water tables are falling fastest is in northwestern India. And there okay. they're falling by about 15 feet per year. Yes. Um, and yes, uh, that's the. That's an extraordinary that, amount of over, well, you call it as over pumping. So they're. They're not recharging the aquifers with rainfall, monsoon, what have you, but rather using a whole lot more so they are really going down by that ratio annually, which is right. – it's daunting. It, it, it's, it's a level that is, you know, as you're implying, uh, virtually incomprehensible to pick up on something you uh, wrote in your book, uh, Farmer Premier – Wen Jibao of China warned that, quote, water shortages threaten the very survival of the Chinese nation. So you never hear this in public, but that's something obviously you, you got access to of how serious leadership, not in this country, but in others, recognize this problem to be. So, uh, you know, so you've got the, the agriculture question that you raise between grain growing altogether, being a major consumer of water. Uh, you also brought up the question of, of energy, especially coal, as another major source of the use of fresh water. Would you comment on that and what that looks like if we were to move to a renewable energy, solar, wind, geothermal, tidal, ironically, uh, kind of renewable-based economy, biogas? Yeah, that, that, that's where we're headed of necessity toward a world where um, the economy depends primarily on water um, and uh, uh and we're, we're going to see um, water tables falling in so many countries that are not in a position to cope with. I mean, for example, in Iran, the, the, the geologists there think that Iran has enough water to support 24 million people you know, indefinitely. But they've got 76 million people already, and it's still expanding. So the Iranians are, are, not surprisingly, moving out, and some of them are going to um, Europe, but a lot of them are going to the United States and are ending up in California. And uh, California is, um, is an area where there's already a lot of pressure on the water resources and where we're seeing uh, shrinkage. So when you the, the other the side global, of this coin yeah, please. Is, is that the alternative to an, an adequate water supply is desertification. And we're seeing huge growth in deserts now in various parts of the world, such as... Where are those showing up mostly? Northwestern China, um, in, um, uh, in, in parts of... India, also northwestern India, but all, um, the the countries in uh, uh, around the the Mediterranean are all being squeezed um, for water resources. As in uh, North either, Africa, you don't yes. mean the EU itself, but you mean, for instance, like Egypt. Yeah, Egypt, Perhaps Israel, Israel. Um, the Israelis have been have worked really hard to maintain uh, water resources. So they're, they're in a class by themselves in terms of knowing how to deal with water scarcity. But even so, they're still running into some serious problems. And a country like Iran that has, a, according to its own meteorologists, or um, it has enough water to support 24 million people, but they've now got 76 million people, and they're migrating out to Europe and to uh, to the U.S. In the case of the U.S., mostly to California. But, sure, um, sure. Water scarcity is going to shape our future in in ways that we do not now, do not yet recognize. 
Yes. So, you know, you mentioned that 70% of fresh water withdrawals are for agriculture. So I assume on one hand that's rice, that's wheat, that would be soy, and then there are uh, animal agriculture, so to speak, the commercial ag business of cattle and hogs and chickens, poultry, and the like. So what is the withdrawal for for those? Well, one of the things I think we're going to uh, uh, learn is that we cannot keep moving up the food chain consuming more and more livestock products, as um, many countries in the world are doing. We simply will not have the, um, uh, the means to, uh, to do that. And so we're now seeing um, in the U.S. Uh, a drop in, in livestock production and one that's probably going to continue for some time. Um, and, and the big question is, in the end, is with um, with this aquifer depletion and the associated desertification that's occurring in so many parts of the world, where are we going to go? And the answer is, uh, um, I mean, I, I entitled the last chapter in the book, Can We Save Ourselves? Are we capable of making the changes needed? I mean, it, it's, it's interesting and sort of amusing to see the Chinese... Um, importing so much uh, water, and they have started closing their their rice, um, um, not their rice, their uh, rice paddy. Uh, no, rice uh, st- starting to close their um, um, use of land for oh. for rice. For rice growing. Oh, I see. For for uh-huh. for rice and and for uh, for rice for um, 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 hitting hitting um, um, food with. So we're looking at some difficult situations in the world. I mean, uh, one is uh, what are we going to do in Egypt? Because Egypt has long depended on water from upstream coming down to satisfy their needs, and and that's worked well for a few thousand years. But suddenly, the countries upstream, uh, now including Ethiopia, for example, which has, I don't know, has more people than than Egypt, I think 84 million or so, those countries are beginning to draw on water resources in a way that's, that's diminishing the prospects for the Nile. So... The, the the water issue and the competition is really going to be be something to um, to watch, and it's going to shape our future. Yeah, yeah. Now I brought up the subject of coal. You know, in contrast to, thankfully, the upsurge in renewable energy interest and investment. Um, so what if, Lester, we were to move substantially away from coal into the renewables? What kind of effect would that have on water conservation and allowing more fresh water to be available for other purposes? Well, we're going to have to do that. Coal is a, is a loser for sure, and it's just a matter of time until we phase out um, the use of uh, coal partly because of its carbon emissions. Um, yes. But it, it doesn't have any sort of direct relationship with the, um, with the renewable energy um, um, situation, and that's where um, we're running into the big problems. We have a country like Pakistan, for example. Um, Pakistan is now using all the water it has and it, it once had a lot of water in storage. It no longer does. And so it's losing uh, the capacity to irrigate and to produce food. Um, Iran is in a somewhat similar situation because it once got, um, I think, two-thirds of its water resources from um, 
from the south of the country, but now that's all gone dry. And so we have Iran with very limited water resources and a lot of Iranians migrating abroad, many of them coming to California. They're probably... So you mentioned, yeah, exactly. You know, you you share some remarkable and chilling, if you will, statistics in your book. Uh, For instance, uh, first of all, you, you said earlier that Northwest India is pumping at 15 times faster than the aquifers can recharge. Well, you also state that Saudi Arabia is pumping 10 times faster than its aquifers can recharge. Kuwait, with only 4 million people, the situation is worse. It's using 25 times the rate of its uncommonly slow aquifer replenishment. So, what we see is this is, of course, a worldwide problem. How does the United States, Lester, relate to these daunting figures in these other parts of the world? Well, we used to think that we could separate ourselves uh, country by country, but the reality is the reality is that we all depend on the world grain market. I mean, the world grain market is really the world water market. The way that we export water is in the form of grain. It takes a 1,000 tons of water to produce a ton of grain. So whenever we're exporting or importing grain, we're exporting and importing water. Um, And that's that's the the new dimension of this this problem because if you're – um, exporting grain, you're exporting water on a huge scale. And it takes a yeah. thousand tons of water to produce a ton of grain. Another interesting point you made in the book, and correct me if I don't get this correct, but you said that we get ourselves 500 more um, uh, amount of water from 500 times more water in our body through food than through drinking water directly. That's a remarkable statistic. I hadn't yeah, known and, that ratio. And and that's because it takes so much water to produce the food. To I mean, we drink exactly. We we drink four liters of water a day. That's not a big deal, but the food we eat requires about um, oh maybe four thousand times that much um, uh, water to produce. And that's where the that's where the water issue really begins to. To yes. Surface. Yes. Another another point you made, and maybe you can help elucidate this, is the amount of water measured in cubic in cubic meters, uh, and how much we typically get in the West, and what is available to people in these countries that are harder hit. Could you do a little bit of a compare contrast? on that level and that way of looking at the situation? Yeah, let me see what I can do. I mean, we know that in this country we consume about four liters of water per person per day. And that's easy to visualize. But the food we eat requires 500 times as much water to produce as the water we drink. So we think of water in terms of what we drink, but the the key really is water in terms of the amount of food it takes to produce. And we're seeing yes. it very dramatically right now, China moving 240 million people from central China to the eastern part of the country because they don't have enough water to support people in the central part of the country. And that story is going to be told many times over in other parts of the world as the water situation tightens further. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, many years ago, uh, I did an interview with the filmmakers of a film called Water Wars, which was about the water conflicts between India and Bangladesh and to some extent China. And it just it, it shows you, of course, they say water is the new oil, you know, and it's going to be, for many reasons, way more valuable than oil ever was, even no when question. oil was 
very useful back, especially at the turn of the 20th century, when it was actually considered an environmental alternative to whale oil. You know, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, another quote from your book uh, from the UN World Water Development Report in 2015 reported that 22 of India's 32 largest cities, and that was then, were facing daily water shortages. The Indian subcontinent, which includes India, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh, and which is home to 1.7 billion people, has one of the lowest per capita water availabilities in the world. So are we relatively safe on the east coast of the United States? Are we better off on the east side of the Mississippi than the west? What are your thoughts? Well, the, if you look at the U.S., east of the Mississippi, things are fairly stable, and, and we're, we're secure. But west of the Mississippi, things are drying out, and no one knows how to stop the drying out. And that's, that's where the problem is going to come, uh, between the Mississippi River and the, and the uh, Pacific Coast. Um, and no one knows how to deal with that, um, because... The uh, water tables have been falling throughout that region for some time now, and they're going to continue to. And at some point, there just won't be enough water um, to go around as there has been uh, traditionally. Yes, 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 yes. So that's largely a function of how the water is being used, and you you know have repeated that 70% of it is for agriculture, commercial agriculture. And then there is coal uh, extraction and washing. And how much is actually used, I I just don't recall right now, for people, i.e., for one's own drinking. When you look at 100% of water on the fresh water on the planet, how much is used by just Human drinking, consumption, showering, brushing your teeth, you know, household, residential type of activity. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have an exact number for, for, um, on that for the world, but we, we do know that um, in the U.S., um, east of the Mississippi, water resources are fairly stable. But west of the Mississippi, from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean, water tables are falling almost everywhere, and we don't yeah. know how to stop that. And and that's going to be, um, I mean, there are going to be a lot of displaced people um, from the western United States because of this aquifer depletion and the loss of, of water. So water is yeah, going to Yeah, there will be migrations up. in our own country, in other words. Yeah not just cross-border. We're going to see water scarcity shape our future in ways that we cannot now even imagine. And it's going to be difficult. Um, And we need, I mean, the only solution over the long term is to reduce world population. I mean, it's a a little bit like China about 40 years ago when China realized they couldn't continue to have having, you know, families of two, three, four children. They could only have one child per family and they adopted they adopted the one child family program and that that yeah. literally saved them. And that's the kind of thing that we're gonna to have to do elsewhere. We can't keep adding people um when water tables are falling. Yes. Yes, yes. And there are certain uh groups um socioeconomic, et cetera, in this country and elsewhere that are having fewer and fewer children and other groups that are having more and more children or a little bit more stably. But nonetheless, overall, human population globally continues to grow massively. And uh, this is obviously a very controversial and political issue and, you know, is pushing a lot of hot buttons all over the place, but it's just one of those things people don't really want to talk about, but you're saying clearly it must be talked about, and I'm glad that we're at least bringing the subject up on the show, not that I have a, a ready answer to it, or do you, but 
certainly the one-child ch- policy that the Chinese had, which was highly controversial. In fact, a film just came out about it, uh, a documentary, uh, decrying that policy. Yet, what other answers do we have? I don't know just yet. But I'd like to uh, also make reference to something that was uh, alarming, amusing and alarming, which is that you said of the 350 or so golf courses throughout China, uh, more than 60% of them have now been converted uh, converted to farmland because the water use is so much less and the need for uh, wheat and grain is so much higher now. So I was just uh, giggling to myself a little bit that Trump better watch out or we might have to convert some of his <laughs> golf courses, you know. <laughs> now, but, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I had never, you know, over the years in the past when I was concerned about the, the water issue, I had never thought that we would reach the point where we would start closing golf courses. And yet, that's exactly what the Chinese have been doing. And they've closed yeah. hundreds of them and hundreds more uh, waiting to be closed. And it's just because they need that land and water to produce food rather than to provide entertainment. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, we're again, we're always knocking at that door, Lester, of the economic disparities between people. And are we going to allow you know, the wealthier to use rare and precious water supplies, say, out on the West Coast when they don't have enough water to grow to grow crops or for even, you know, showering in some cases where it was in the L.A. area some time ago. You know, things like that, almost not quite that, that severe. But it, it does point to this, disparity that has been plaguing our country and others for the longest time you know but let's let's take a moment and look at potential solutions because i actually do believe there are numerous one of course is probably the largest one is population uh growth and stemming it so that's one very obvious one that stares everyone in the face. Another one is the moving away from uh, commercial livestock. And I do make a distinction between commercial livestock growing and silvopasture and uh, normal animal grazing that has been part of the planet's history forever. And not to open up that subject, but there's a lot of literature on that subject and science but we're talking about commercial livestock but we're even going another step in what you're saying which is grain altogether is the largest consumer of fresh water so how can we it becomes incumbent upon us to to alter our diet so in other words lifestyle choices dietary choices also become a very potentially significant part of this water conservation equation. Could you talk to that? Well, what we've had over the last several decades, your lifetime and my lifetime, is um, a lot of people in the world moving up the food chain to consume more livestock products. And that's even uh, made its way into China now, where the Chinese are consuming a lot more livestock products than they than yeah. they used to. But those livestock products all involve water. I mean, we drink about four liters of water per day, but the grain and the products that we consume um, um, contain maybe or re- require maybe 2,000 liters of water per day. So it's so much larger, and that's something we have not come to terms with, but which we will have to come to terms with one way or another. Yes. Now, in the work that I do in part here at A Better World, Lester, we look at different technologies, uh, some of which have been developed rather finely to recycle water. And so one company that uh, we have dealt with has installations in different cities, 
such as in Algiers and in Mexico and elsewhere, that it recycles 90% of a, uh, a city's um, water supply. It can recycle the water in a house instead of a septic tank by using anaerobic digestion. It can be used in restaurants and the like. So when you really start to multiply it out, this, I'm imagining, would become a significant number for in the direction of water conservation. Are you aware mm-hmm. of those types of technologies that are out there? Yeah, I don't think there's any. Yeah, I don't think there's any question, but that that's the direction in in which we have to move. I mean, when we look at the Brits, for example, and we see them uh, uh, recycling so much of their their water, um, that that greatly reduces the the pressure on the original sources of water. But overall. Um, it, it's going to be difficult because there's so many people in the world today, um, and we're adding a, a record number each year, 83 million people, and they all require water. They won't survive without it, and we're, we're just not we're just not yet facing the water slash population issue in the way that we need to if we're going to successfully deal with it. Well, what do you propose? What If you were, uh, let's say, the water advisory cabinet member of an administration, I'm afraid to say you wouldn't be of this one, but hopefully the next. If there was a water advisory cabinet level position, which I think there should be, uh, what would you advise the president and the rest of the cabinet and Congress? It would involve reducing water use per person throughout the country, especially the western part of the country, from the Mississippi River to the west coast. We're seeing water tables fall very fast there. And you can have falling water tables in the short run, but not in the long run, because in the long run, that means you're running out of water. And we have not yet realized how... um, how tight the water situation is going to become in this country or indeed in the world. Um, and uh, that's um, that's going to be a wake-up call when we realize, I mean, the world in which you and I have grown up in has been one where we could have more of everything whenever we wanted it. That's not yeah. always going to be the case. That's right. That's right. Resources are limited. I want to bring up, though, because I'm very focused on solutions. I'm, my heart has already broken several times over the course of years contemplating the kinds of subjects that you have outlined in your books and uh, I have thought about, of course, over the course of many decades, as have you with the World Watch Institute, etc. But uh, the only way through is the activation and execution of different uh, types of uh, solutions. Another one that we here at A Better World, Lester, uh, utilize is, interestingly, a specific and patented uh, version of lawn seed. It's a lawn seed combination of some ancient lawn seeds that have such properties as they need almost no water nor fertilizer, certainly not any pesticides. They grow four-foot roots, and they grow very slowly, and they retain moisture. They grow even in deserts. And there are 45,000 square miles approximately in this country alone that are irrigated and lawns. And if we were to change that around to using this lawn seed, we would be saving an enormous amount of water, not to mention pesticide runoff, you know, and and tremendous actual financial savings as well. So I'm citing this as well as the, you know, the mention of the anaerobic digesters, the change in lifestyle from more plant-based and even moving away not just from livestock but even from grain as a staple of 
the diet. And I, it seems to me that if we were to do these things, and by the way, the closing of golf courses, including the president's, um, <laughs> I know that sounds rough, but nonetheless, if we were to take the fact is that based on what you've been saying in your books, and this one in particular, there really are solutions to help stem the tide, no pun intended, of the loss of fresh water on our planet. There really are ways, even though they're not popular and it will require lifestyle changes and difficult choices for people. You know, take up tennis, for instance, instead of golf, <laughs> things like that. I mean, you know, life could be harder, couldn't it be? Well, um, it's... We're, we're in a situation where you know there's more tightening here today and more tightening there tomorrow, and it just keeps going. And I was yeah. personally surprised when I saw that the Chinese are you know piling up their golf courses. I mean, it had never sure. occurred to me that a country would do would reach the point where they had to do that. But that's that's what they're doing, and we're going to see that in other countries too, including quite possibly the United States. Indeed, indeed. That's why I'm telling Trump that he better watch out because right. we're going after his golf courses next. <laughs> but there's another interesting point that I'd love to hear you speak to. Uh, and this emerged from an interview I did recently with uh, NASA scientist Dennis Bushnell, who you may know. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I met him through your other colleague, the dear Hazel Henderson. And uh-huh. uh Dennis and I spoke rather recently, and when he was tasked at NASA for coming up with solutions to environmental crises, the one that he favors most and says this is truly an answer to reversing global warming, so we're talking about, of course, carbon sequestration and the costs of, f- of food growth and production is halophytes. And he made the point, which of course are are seawater-based plant food and uh, plants. And he pointed out that of the 100% of water on the planet, only 3% is fresh water, 97% is salt water. And why the heck are we not turning to that salt water as the source of our food? And I don't just mean fish, of course. I mean right. which stocks are almost depleted anyway. But of and, course, and the answer to the answer to the answer to that question is that it takes a lot of capital to desalt seawater. And if you look at the Israelis, they have some very costly desalting operations there to get water. And for them, it's partly a military security thing. But um, yes, it, uh, as, a, yeah. Yeah, as a general matter, it takes a lot of energy to desalt seawater. And, and, and so the cost of, of, of getting usable water from desalting is, is pretty high. And um, and you you go around the world and you can't find anyone who's really, you know, invested in this area because the the odds don't favor the investors in desalted seawater. Well, I'm not I, talking I mean, about we, desalination. We, I'm talking pardon? about the. I'm not talking about desalination. I believe Dennis is talking about uh, plants that actually grow and thrive in salt water. And that could be our food source. They're highly nutritional, and that way we don't have to put the heavy tax on the 3% fresh water. We would be eating plants coming from salt water. That would change the entire scenario virtually immediately. It, it would. And there it are happen. some countries that are using uh, and have been using halophytes you know, as part of their traditional diets. Yeah. But but having recognized the, the, those points, I am skeptical um, that we could do this on a on a scale on, on a global scale that would make a a big difference. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I I why 
Why do you not? I mean, since we have salt water everywhere and halophytes are growing naturally, we could also cultivate them as well yeah, and mean, you perhaps can, you deal can, with the desertification, desertification issue as well. Desert you can find these examples, but to find yes. commercial successes on a large scale is almost impossible, and that's that's my concern. That we yes. we we see we see how we can do things technically, but not necessarily how we can do things economically. Well, that's an interesting point and a good one. And if it, this is what we know about human beings, if it's not commercially viable, it's probably not going to happen. But uh, it may be that there are some clever entrepreneurs who can have the vision to make the halophyte, um, uh, you know, adventure really profitable. Maybe not massively, but at least reasonably. And I think our economy would be best off if it were just going for reasonable profit across the board anyway. That's another conversation. But, yeah. uh, no, I hear what you're saying. I, I so appreciate, Lester Brown, the work that you have been doing for so many decades. You have been telling the truth about water and everything regarding the environment for so many decades, and you are truly a treasure chest for us as a nation and us as a planet. And I do hope that many, many people read this book and take it to heart and uh, drink more water. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> people respect the water that they're utilizing and recognize that it is a an element that is rapidly disappearing, and you lay that out so superbly in your book, and it's something we just have to pay such attention to. What would be your your last words to our audience today? Well, for for Americans, um, the U.S. west of the Mississippi is drying out now, and we haven't yes. figured out how to arrest that, but it's going to. It's going to shape the future of the country, and it's going to be a real problem. Um, but the the challenge that we face is um, is how to get enough fresh water, not just to drink, which is only four liters a day, but it takes about two thousand liters a day to produce the food that we eat. So so we have to be very very sensitive to the desalting. Of, um, of, uh, of of water and 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 looking for ways to get enough water uh, to to keep us uh, enough fresh water to keep us going. That's the big challenge. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, I want to just thank you again for being a guest again on A Better World. It's always such a pleasure to have you. And uh, I so appreciate, as I just said, the good work that you have been doing, the excellent work. And you have helped to enrich the understanding of our relationship to our environment uh, for so many. Me very much at the top of that food chain. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, 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 I would just say that... Um, it's um, it's it's been a challenging time that we've moved into here in in the world as a as a civilization, and it's going to be even more challenging in the future as we try to deal with the the um, uh, scarcity of uh, of fresh water. But it's also been a very satisfying period for me that my analyses of of these various issues are being. Are, are being looked at now in a way that I, yes. I, I think will be will be helpful. Yes, I think so. I think so. And we'll be broadcasting this over and again and posting it so many people's eyes can uh, hit the link and listen to your sage words and guidance on the subject of water and water use and water conservation across the planet. So, Lester Brown, I want to just thank you again from myself and from A Better World. So appreciate the work you're doing. Please continue on. Um, I, I plan to do that, and uh, I thank you for carrying this program. My pleasure. Bye-bye now. Take care.
Lester Brown, environmental scientist par excellence, world-renowned, as I said before, and thought of, spoken about by the Washington Post as, quote, one of the world's most influential thinkers, and the Telegraph of Calcutta refers to him as, I like this so much, quote, the guru of the environmental movement. So his work has been so embraced by so many. Uh, It's just that it's not recognized enough in the so-called halls of power, the corridors of power. So it doesn't get the traction it definitely needs to, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have Lester on today's show. So, again, we come back, folks, to ourselves, to our lifestyles, our lifestyle choices, our human existential ontological choices, moment to moment, and how they affect the environment around us, affect each other, and affect even our own personal health. Personal and planetary health, sustainability, and well-being are one. They are not separate. And the crises that are before us are showing that to be so true for those who hadn't gotten it before. We are now seeing it in technicolor, if you will. And as Lester Brown properly said, the migratory patterns are going to be shaping our world and where populations of people can live. Uh, Many people don't seem to be aware, but it is said by many that the whole conflict in Syria arose because farmers in the countryside did not have enough water to grow the food not just for the marketplace, but even for their own families. And for that reason, they began to speak up and to demonstrate. And that was the basis originally of what is now considered a civil war. So what we see are what are called water wars. And if you want more on that particular subject and the citation I made during uh, this interview of my interview with the filmmakers of a film by that name, just go to our archive and put in Water Wars. It was when I was on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Knoll's PRN online radio station uh, some years back. So you can just go to Radio Archive and hit PRN. It should come up if it's that or the other blog talk radio. Either way, it should come up. You can scour the website and certainly find it, as well as my prior interview with Lester on what we called four or five years ago the water crisis. So as we see, things have actually worsened, not gotten better. But I do want to say that there are really, truly uh, choices that we can make that relate largely to our dietary choices, and so we're looking at uh, a greater plant food-based diet. Uh, We're also looking at food waste management, which in Paul Hawkins' drawdown is one of the very top 10 items, if I'm not mistaken, of environmental greenhouse gas emissions from food waste. It's enough to make you cry because people in restaurants all over the world, in fact, eat a smidgen of what they're served uh, and are busy drinking gallons of alcohol and lose their appetite. And that food is being thrown out, some of it thanks to organizations such as City Harvest and others in New York City, grab that food and distribute it to shelters and to the homeless and to others. Um, And that's wonderful. But that is but a small percentage of the vastness of food waste happening globally every single day, every single hour. So something else to become aware of, and also simply recycling. 
as I mentioned before, there are companies, and if you want more information on this, if you run any kind of municipality or a large farm of any sort, or if you're involved in aquaculture, please contact us here at A Better World directly on email mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. And we truly have solutions for dealing with that, and we can recycle tremendous amounts of water, and that would truly change the issues we're facing with the fresh water increasing deficit, as well as I mentioned the lawn seed, a better world stands squarely behind. These are just two very few, very obvious places. And our lawn seed, amusingly, I never thought about it before, uh, is uh, using more than 75% less water, more. It's 75%. It, it needs almost no water to thrive and look delicious and gorgeous. I say delicious because grass is also edible. And we had a doctor on not long ago who has put forward a food program for the world that's based on eating grass. And uh, I don't mean wheatgrass. I mean grass. He's done the nutritional analysis of ordinary grass, and it is sufficient to feed hungry populations. And if you look at our lawn seed grass, it's even richer with a nutritional uh, profile. So I'm saying that we have solutions, my friends, right here in River City, uh, no pun intended. And uh, I would welcome your interest in participating in these solutions so we can really do a lot to preserve fresh water. And before concluding, I want to just flip over to the interview I did with senior NASA scientist Dennis Bushnell. I believe it needs to be reiterated that 97% of the water on the planet is salt water, and inside salt water are very real nutrients, halophytes. And he has worked extensively with this idea, has developed it massively so that it can be a program virtually that can be executed. Now, it does, as Lester Brown also pointed out, need some real um, kind of entrepreneurial vision in order to make it commercially viable. But I don't think that would be any problem. I've already begun setting my mind to that. And with a, a few more weeks and a few more friends thinking with me, I think we can come up with some very viable solutions. So if we were to shift from the freshwater focus to the saltwater focus and let fresh water uh, recharge, which it does through the hydrologic cycle, we really can gain uh, traction here by dietary changes away from rice and then even away from wheat, we can have a different and better world. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. And remember that we offer a series of different services from uh, executive and business to personal coaching, counseling, stress management consulting, utilizing biofeedback, and some ancient uh, forms of relaxation techniques. And we also have energy balancing available uh, that uh is with you 24-7 if you want. We have everything at very reasonable pricing, and we have a Better World Promotions in case you have a book or a concert or a film or a webinar or a seminar or a retreat that you would like to promote. Again, we have very reasonable fees and for those services, and we reach a lot of people, and we have a lot of fun, and we give you something that is going to last 
sustainably over time. So remember, we are a nonprofit. We are a 501c3. Your donations and contributions to us help us stay on the air and to thrive and expand our platform. So always, always appreciated. For that, again, email me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's mjr at abetterworld.net. And we always love your suggestions and comments on our shows, and you can write those to that same email address as well, or call us at 212-420-0800. And we're thrilled, by the way, that we have people from all over the world listening, from Taiwan and Australia and the Philippines, different parts of Asia, South Africa, Mexico, Europe, UK, Canada. It's wonderful and heartwarming. So spread the word, tell your friends, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. This is Mitchell J. Raven signing off, and I will see you soon.